Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. A cold dose of reality from the experts, and equities appear to pay attention. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. Welcome back. Let's turn to the state of Connecticut now. It has had more than 30,000 COVID cases so far, and very sadly, more than 3,000 deaths. But at the same time, hospitalizations are coming down as it looks toward a possible deadline for maybe some relief from some of the restrictions coming up on May 20. We welcome now an exclusive interview, the governor of the state of Connecticut. He is Ned Lamont. Mr. Governor, thank you so much for joining us and giving us your sense of where the disease is in your state. And what do you need to see between now and May 20 to relieve at least some of those restrictions? Look, Connecticut got pretty hard. We were right next to a New York City, which was uh, in many ways the Wuhan province of the pandemic here in the United States. And um, but now it's, uh, you know, six weeks later, uh, all those curves are bending in the right direction. We have uh, extra hospitalization capacity there, which was a key metric. We're finally getting the PPE. We delivered it ourselves, bought it from China. Complicated process, I might say. We got track and trace and testing ready to go. And these are the key metrics we needed to give people confidence we could begin to reopen on May 20th. Uh, Governor, can you give us any sense of the distribution across the state? And I mean, I guess, both socioeconomic but also geographic. We see some differences in some states. In fact, of course, New York is a larger geographic state. There's going to be differences in the reopening. Is that going to apply in Connecticut? Well, first of all, um, we were hit in different ways in different regions. You know, Fairfield County, which is closest to New York City, was hit the hardest, hit the earliest, went right down Metro North and I-95 up through Bridgeport, New Haven, Hartford. That was the area that probably uh, got hit the hardest uh, because of the proximity to New York. 
And now we've got Eastern Connecticut, which is the new London area, and maybe a little bit of Boston is coming down that way as well. Uh, but we're a pretty small state, so our anticipation is we're going to open on a statewide basis uh, on a very thoughtful way. And uh, on some things, we want to do it in association with our neighboring governors. It doesn't do me any good to um, close down bars and restaurants if Andrew Cuomo opens them up in Westchester County. So we're doing some things in conjunction. Yeah, Governor, as you mentioned, there's so much integration between Connecticut and particularly New York City, the New York City area. What about those commuter trains? Will that pose a particular challenge for you? Because we have a lot of people going back and forth between Connecticut and New York every single day on those trains. Uh, there were a lot of people uh, going back and forth, uh, and we thought about that. But within a, a few weeks, ridership was down 95 percent. So I think people uh, voted with their feet, so to speak. They started staying at home, they started telecommuting, or they drove if they had to which was a good thing. So um, Governor Cuomo and I thought about what we should do with, say, Metro North, the rail system, and decided it was probably first responders and people that really had no other way to get to work. So we did keep it open on a limited basis. But as you reopen, as, as we reopen, will we be looking at a certain curtailment, for example, of capacity, the, the seating arrangements, things like that, in the commuter trains? Uh, we're certainly going to be very strict about um, uh, desanitizing and making sure everything is clean on a real basis. Probably going to discourage people from going in the train for the near term. Uh, probably going to uh, strongly recommend that everybody use masks in the train for the near term. But I think even bigger, I think you're going to find that um, the, the old idea of a commuter going into New York City five days a week may be an idea that's behind us. I think we found at the end of this uh, COVID uh, session um, that we're realizing that telecommuting in many cases works. So maybe you have a great job that seems to be a geographically located in New York City. You can do it two-thirds of the time from your home in Stanford. As you look towards a possible reopening, uh, uh, what is your situation with respect to testing, with respect to tracing, and hospital capacity? You said you have the hospital capacity you need right now, but in case there's a flare-up, how much capacity do you have to deal with it? Well, we have 40% capacity now, and... Um, I think uh, that, that's a pretty good benchmark. If there's a flare-up, I would rethink things if we got to 80 or 90 percent capacity. Obviously, we have capacity now. In fact, they're going back and doing some of the uh, so-called electives, many of which were important operations that were put off and should be uh, taking place now. The testing, um, we've ramped that up. We're doubled it from last week. We'll double it again next week. So we'll be doing about 42,000 tests a week uh, starting next week. Governor, you mentioned that PPE, that personal protective equipment that you bought from China, a fair amount of it now. Have you had any issues with the quality of that? Because there have been some other places around the world and even around the country who've bought things from China, and it turns out it didn't work so well, whether it's testing kits or whether it's PPE. We had to be very careful in, in how you vet this. That's, that's a good question. And uh, let's face it, you know, a, a month or so ago when people were really scrambling the globe, uh, everybody had a friend who had a cousin in Ukraine who did some work with Rudy Giuliani, and you didn't know where you were getting this uh, stuff from. Uh, we didn't do any of that, but we found this. We vetted it very carefully, working closely with the government of, of China, working with some strong relationships we had here with the business people in Connecticut. So I have it on high confidence that this is the right stuff. Uh, going forward, I mean, you've been coordinating with Governor Cuomo, with Governor Murphy down in New Jersey and things like that. Do you envision a world in which those three states and maybe more really get together in the manufacturing and purchasing of PPE and stockpiling? Yeah, I think that makes all the sense in the world. You know, we've got a buying consortium now, so it's not little Connecticut going all the way to China to buy this product. But even more importantly, we ought to figure out 
who is good at manufacturing what? We, we've got a facility here in this state that makes vents. Gina Raimondo up in Rhode Island has a group that's making uh, masks in a significant way. Phil Murphy, they've got some of the best pharma in the country and are doing the saliva tests. So I think there are a lot of ways we can mix and match. That was Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont. Coming up, looking for green shoots. Could the auto industry point the way toward a rebound? We talk with Wall Street veteran and architect of the auto industry recovery, Steve Ratner. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Whether driven by electricity or internal combustion engines, automobiles have long been an important indicator of the overall economy. And they may be showing some slight signs of a rebound. Steve Ratner is a veteran of Wall Street who also headed up President Obama's efforts to save the auto industry. And we asked him whether he could see some indications of a rebound overall in the economy from what we're seeing from automobiles. David, I think we have to be careful not to be misled by uh, early signs of what may seem like spring. We are going to see, and there's already a little bit, a tiny little bit of evidence of a pickup in car sales from uh, obviously an abysmally low level in the month of, uh, month of April. But this is, this is all going to be relatively small potatoes uh, compared to the distance we have to go to get back to where we were before all this started. And I am pretty pessimistic about our ability to get back to that point uh, at any time in the immediate or uh, imaginable future. Well, we heard some of the pessimism, or at least realism perhaps, from the Fed chair, Jay Powell, in his remarks, where he really warned about things like mass bankruptcy and unemployment if we don't do even more in the financial, the fiscal and the monetary side. Uh, is there more that can and should be done to try to bring that recovery sooner? Yes, absolutely. I, I am completely in agreement with uh, Chairman Powell, not that he needs uh, my support for his, for his thoughts. Uh, look, as I said, I think, I think the notion that we are facing a V-shaped recovery where it's all going to bounce back, car sales are going to go back to 17 million, people are going to travel and spend and go to Disney World and all those kinds of things is, is frankly a fantasy. Uh, this has been an enormous shock to the economic system. There's been much permanent job loss, factories that are never going to reopen, restaurants that are never going to reopen, companies that are never going to rehire back, or at least not in the foreseeable future, all the people that they have laid off. And so we do need to do more. But I think it needs to be not just providing income support to Americans who've lost their jobs and to uh, businesses that are in danger of failing, but also we need to really rebuild America. We need to finally do something on infrastructure. We need to do something about retraining and finding jobs for the people who are not going back to their old jobs because this whole economy is going to shift into a somewhat different uh, focus. And so, yeah, there's an enormous amount Congress can do. The question is whether they have the will to do it. In the meantime, we have uh, big investors trying to decide what to do. We heard Stanley Darkemuller and Luntepri saying they're very concerned about the equity markets being overly optimistic about the future. As an investor, what do you do in that environment where equities actually have bounced back a long way from the trough, frankly, and they may not be justified by the economic data? I think many of us have been scratching our heads about the resurgence of the equity market and we can debate the reasons for it. Uh, I think the, the, the most important reason is probably all the liquidity the Fed has pumped into the system. But nonetheless, uh, I think what Stanley Druckenmiller and David Tepper and others have been saying makes a lot of sense in terms of being concerned about the level of the equity market. How do you hedge it? 
Well, the simplest thing to do is simply sell. Uh, there are then, if you, if you, for whatever reason, want something more esoteric, you can do things with options, you can do things with tail risk. There are more sophisticated ways. But at the bottom line is either, if you don't have a positive view about the equity market, you simply need to reduce your exposure to the equity market, give up the possible upside, and protect yourself against the downside. We still are in a world of quite efficient markets, and there are no silver bullets or magic ways to, to take out the downside but keep the upside. So, so I guess it was Margaret Thatcher that talked about Tina, the, uh, there is no alternative. Is there an alternative? I mean, you have to put your money somewhere. Is it better off under the mattress, or are there other asset classes that, that offer at least some solace? I don't, I don't think there are any. Again, there's no magic bullets or simple solutions. Part of, again, why the equity markets have been so robust is because people look around and see relative, interest rates relatively near zero, and decide that's not a particularly attractive place to put their money. And you can make 2 or 3% just on the dividend yield on the S&P, so that seems pretty interesting. But then you're taking all this uh, risk on your actual capital value. Um, so, no, there are no, there are, again, there are unfortunately no secret places you can put your money. I don't think any of us feel that uh, corporate credit, corporate bonds, things like that are particularly attractive at these levels either. And so I think... Uh, the best advice I would give would be a, a mix of some equity exposure so that if, in fact, it turns out these levels of the stock market make some sense, you can participate in it with good companies, uh, combined with maintaining a very low leverage, low level of leverage, if any at all, and a, high, and a high amount of a cash balance on which you should not expect to earn any interest, but you're not going to lose any money. And what about cross-border exposure? There's a lot of talk now that uh, supply chains may never be the same. Certainly, there's a lot of focus on China right now with the president really uh, certainly rattling a saber about China. Does that indicate that you're better off with more domestic exposure and not as exposed to globalization? We have to see how that unfolds. Uh, there's certainly a lot of talk by the president, but frankly, with the president, it's mostly talk. There's some talk among CEOs, and that we should pay close attention to. I think we've all learned a lesson here about long supply chains. But as we look around the world as investors, we find Europe exceedingly uninteresting. Uh, they have huge structural problems. Their companies are not the companies that are most likely to do well in a post-COVID environment. They have a lot of old economy industrial companies. Uh, China has done and is continuing to do amazingly well both in terms of uh, keeping the virus under control, but in getting people back to work and in, uh, and in getting their economy going again. And the, the biggest risk in China is the one that you identified, which is essentially will they have customers, either because the economies uh, elsewhere are not in great shape or because the supply lines are too long. We'll have to see how that unfolds. But we have been before all this and continue to be as an economic matter, not as a political matter, not as a, uh, any other matter of that sort, but as a purely economic matter, we continue to find China very interesting as investors and, and uh, are disproportionately invested there. Is the big issue right now for the United States and maybe for the globe demand? I mean, we hear about things like demand destruction or, or a doom loop. Uh, is that what uh, you believe Chairman Powell was talking about when he said there could be really long-term, maybe even permanent damage to the economy? Are we in danger of permanently destroying demand? I think we have a problem on both the supply and the demand side. We clearly have a problem on the demand side when you have what is effectively, when you make the right adjustments and things, probably 25% of Americans out of work getting their unemployment insurance, 
but not their their real wages, and with huge uncertainty, since the unemployment insurance does uh, expire the extra six hundred dollars after eight weeks, obviously people are going to spend less, and of course when they're essentially trapped in their houses, they're going to spend less, and you see that in the consumer spending data. That was Steve Ratner, chairman and CEO of Willett Advisors, which invests the private and philanthropic funds of Michael R. Bloomberg, the founder of our parent company. Coming up, oil has added to the concern over the economy overall. We talk with Dan Briette, secretary of the Department of Energy, about the prospects for oil. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Oil has been one of the darkest corners of a gloomy economic picture. But with Saudi Arabia this week announcing unilateral production cuts, things may be looking up. That's what Secretary of Energy Dan Briette says, and he thinks it applies to both the supply and the demand side. Yes, it is starting to look really good, as the president has been saying for quite some time now. Uh, we're on the verge of a transition to greatness, and we're starting to see it. We now have states that are opening. Uh, there are local economies that represents roughly 40% of the gasoline demand in the United States. We're starting to see oil prices stabilize. I think it's very important to note that um, you know this increase is good for consumers in the sense that jobs are protected all across the economy. And uh, we've seen no dramatic impact on gasoline prices across the country, which I think is very important as well. So, Mr. Secretary, take us behind the scenes a little bit, if you can. Uh, We know that President Trump has a very good relationship with the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman. Was that cut at all something that the president helped uh, encourage or even arrange? The president has been personally engaged in this conversation for the last few weeks. Um, You know, as we talked about in the past, OPEC began its conversations around the March time frame, early March time frame, and Saudi Arabia and Russia got got themselves into a bit of a dispute over their production numbers. And um, when the Saudis decided to take some actions right at the beginning of this pandemic that led to both increased production and a reduction in the pricing of oil across the world, it impacted the U.S. producers uh, very dramatically. And the president saw that early. He engaged with the heads of state in both countries, both Russia. He's talked to President Putin several times. And he's also engaged personally with the king of Saudi Arabia. Uh, the, the point of those conversations is to bring stability to the marketplace and stability to the producing community. And that's really our goal here. 
Is there any risk that actually the U.S. production may come back too far too fast? I mean, I, I just read there's Energy Transfer LP came out and said that at least in the Permian Basin, that actually shale's coming back quite fast. That went down about 8% and now a full quarter of that is back online. Are you at all concerned that that might undermine some of the efforts here to stabilize the oil price? No, I don't think so, David. I think what we're going to see here very shortly, if uh, if you're familiar with our Energy Information Administration, what we refer to as EIA, uh, they just put out a report that talks about the uh, economic boom that I think we're just on the verge of seeing. So the third and fourth quarters in 20 and certainly into 21 are going to be very, very robust. So the production will come back online as this economy begins to take off. And if you look at those numbers, I think you'll see the, the, that uh, that what, what the president has referred to as a V-shaped recovery looks very clear in the charts right now. So you'll see the production tend to match that V-shaped curve. So, Mr. Secretary, it wasn't that long ago we were talking about what kinds of accommodations you needed to make. The president designated you, along with Secretary Mnuchin, to really help out the U.S. oil industry. And you were talking about certain things like lending facilities. We also have the Fed now doing that as well, changing their rules. Do we need that support anymore, or is that taken care of pretty much? Well, it's a little early to tell, and it, you know, it varies company by company, but what the Secretary directed uh, both Secretary Mnuchin and myself to do was to evaluate the programs that were passed by the Congress and ensure that there is access for these energy industries to those programs. And that's what we've done. Secretary Mnuchin uh, worked very closely with the Federal Reserve. Uh, we adjusted the program, the Main Street Lending Program, and uh, made that program available to what we refer to as mid-cap size com- uh, companies. You know, there are companies in America that are investment grade. Um, they perhaps do not need the same level of economic help that others do in the marketplace, and they have access to capital and access to liquidity perhaps others don't have. But there are many companies out there that simply didn't have that option. So making available this program uh, that was passed by Congress was very, very important. And I applaud Secretary Mnuchin, the Federal Reserve, and others uh, for moving so aggressively to do exactly that. So, Mr. Secretary, when you implement a program like that, how do you deal with what a lot of people call moral hazard? As you said, the investor-grade companies don't really need it so much. Others do because they're not in nearly as good shape. But sometimes that's because they've, let's be frank, borrowed too much. This tends to be a bit of a boom and bust business, as I understand it, in the oil patch. How do you make sure that we're not encouraging almost reckless behavior when it comes to financing? That's absolutely correct, David. I mean, there's no question that moral hazard exists. It exists in every form of the banking industry. So, you know, when we apply these types of, um, you know, or we create these types of programs, we apply very strict lending standards to them. And what Secretary Mnuchin and I did was to identify those companies that really were impacted by COVID. I mean, but for the COVID pandemic, they would be strong, ongoing concerns. And we looked at those companies for potentially um, making loans available to them. We did, you know, we're very, very clear and very strict about this. There are some companies that were on the verge of insolvency, and they were highly leveraged and were perhaps not going to make it under any circumstance. Those companies are going to be excluded from these types of programs, and I think rightfully so. That was Secretary of Energy Dan Briette. Coming up, we wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Social distancing slows the spread of coronavirus, so stay a minimum of six feet away from others and stay home if you can. More info at coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part, because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad Council. 
This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The experts spoke this week, and for once, investors seemed to take heed. Dr. Anthony Fauci warned that opening the economy too soon could lead not only to illness and even death, but also it could do more harm than good for the economy. And President Trump, he would have none of it. Look, he wants to play all sides of the equation. Uh, I think we're going to have a tremendous fourth quarter. And then Fed Chair Jay Powell warned of potential mass bankruptcies and unemployment. He said that we may need more fiscal and monetary stimulus. And once again, President Trump, he disagreed. I disagree with him on one thing now, and that's uh, negative rates. But Wall Street heavyweights like Stan Druckenmiller and David Tepper sided with the experts, saying the talk of a V-shaped recovery was really just a fantasy, and that equities are more overvalued than at any time since 1999. It was a week of cheerleading from the administration, even as those on the front lines, from governors to investors, talked of caution and of worry. And one of those who's been expressing caution and even worry has been our very own Wall Street Week contributor, Larry Summers. From the very beginning, he's been talking about some of the problems we have in store. This is some of what he said in the past on this program. The first plank in that uh, right economic strategy is an aggressive health strategy. I think the market's reflecting a sense that there's a wall of money. Okay, and we're delighted to have with us now Wall Street Week contributor from Harvard, former Treasury Secretary Lawrence Summers. So, Larry, give us a sense. Why is it so difficult for us as a people to really follow the science, follow the facts? Because it seems like the more we see it, the less we pay attention. I wish I knew and I wish I fully uh, understood. We're not getting presidential leadership that's emphasizing what the scientific community uh, mostly believes. We all want to believe that problems aren't there and that we can go out uh, with uh, equanimity. So there's always a desire to grab on to uh, good news. And we're not being given a solid plan beyond uh, grabbing at flailing attempts that could possibly uh, work. The reality is that viruses like this uh, go into remission, just like cases of cancer do, but there's always a very great risk that they'll come back and you have to manage that risk uh, very aggressively if you want to succeed. And my great threat is fear is that we're not managing that risk uh, aggressively. We're letting everything back into the open before any of the criteria that experts have laid out have been fully uh, met. And we may not pay for it, but I think the best guess has to be that whether it's soon in the next couple of months or whether it's uh, deferred towards fall and winter, we will pay a price for that in more cases, more fear and apprehension, ultimately less economy, uh, more job loss, more uh, reductions uh, in income. So I'm not very comfortable with the path uh, that we're on, which uh, seems to me to be translating hope 
uh, into a strategy. I could conceivably turn out to be wrong, but it's not a prudent bet uh, that we're making. It's not a prudent bet that so many people are not wearing masks. It's not a prudent bet that we're engaged in so little testing and so little contact tracing. It's not a prudent bet that we haven't made more substantial efforts to separate and target aging and vulnerable uh, populations. Our strategy seems to be we're just tired of this and we're going to let it all go. And it might work, but it's not something I think we can count on. Well, Larry, as you say, you may be wrong, and we hope you're wrong, but thus far you've been pretty close to right in all of your caution. Look out now over the next month or two months. What might be maybe on the radar screen but not in the center of it that you think may well end up in the center of it? I think there's a risk that there are going to be big increases in the number of cases in at least some of the places that have opened up and that we're going to have more hot spots that may not be as bad as New York but are going to be in the direction of what happened in New York and that that's going to uh, freak people out. I think there's a risk uh, that the law is going to let up, but people are going to realize that they're actually uh, pretty scared to go to stores and they're pretty scared to sit in restaurants and people are going to realize that life's going to be more or less like this until we have a vaccine and that that's going to be a while and that that's going to lead to some reassessment that there's more uncertainty and lower incomes ahead and that that's hardly going to be a positive uh, factor uh, for uh, for markets. I think there's a risk that we're going to understand that there's much more financial strain ahead as people can start running out of the short cash reserves they had and not paying rent, not making uh, mortgage payments, not making uh, credit card payments. And I think there's an associated risk that lending is going to decline and that that's going to create something of an adverse uh, financial uh, spiral. I think there's a risk. And Larry, Larry, if I could just interrupt on that point, on that point specifically, we heard from I'm sorry, we heard from Fed Chair Jay Powell this week saying if this goes on very long, it's going to be trouble. And then at the very end of the week, the Fed itself came out and warned about potentially significant asset price declines if, in fact, this pandemic lasts too much longer, if this crisis lasts too much longer. At the same time, we have a debate between the Democrats and the Republicans, by and large, in Congress about how fast we need to have the next relief package. How much time do we have? Every week, we delay committing to supporting the incomes of unemployed Americans, supporting new investments in testing, in contact uh, tracing, in addressing this virus. Every week we delay supporting state and local governments is a week that we are weakening the foundation of the economy, prolonging uh, the downturn, reducing the speed of uh, the upturn. We should be making the necessary commitment to keep supporting uh, the economy within the next two weeks. And it looks less likely now that we're going to do it. 
Does Nancy Pelosi have exactly the right formula? I think she's got many of the right elements, uh, health investments, state and local government, unemployment insurance uh, in particular. But we need uh, to be getting uh, somewhere. And uh, I hope that we can find in the face of this most extraordinary of emergencies, some capacity for bipartisan cooperation. Is the best way to help the workers uh, directly to the workers or does it go through the states, through block grants uh, or to the companies? I think we I think we need to have generous unemployment insurance and we need, it needs to be there for gig workers. It needs to be there whether your job ends. It needs to be there whether you're on temporary layoff. Whatever exactly the circumstances, if people have lost their ability to work, we need to be supporting their incomes and those of their families. We've got municipalities who do vital work. They fight the fires. They uh, keep the streets uh, safe. They will have to educate the children, perhaps in uh, new ways, uh, given uh, this challenge. This is no time for them to be cutting their budgets because of balanced budget amendments and reduced uh, tax collections. This is no time for hospitals to be closing. This is no time for doctors and nurses to be furloughed. And if we're gonna avoid that, we need to uh, be supporting state and local governments. And we need to get off of defense. We need to start playing offense and start using a moment when commodities are cheap, when there's all kinds of unemployed people to do the work, whether it's renewing the country's uh, infrastructure, whether it's building a caring economy, to do the work that's always been essential um, for us as a uh, country. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. There's a lot of work to be done, not to speak of infrastructure, which is something you've talked about uh, on more than one occasion, Larry. Renew the infrastructure. And that's what we need to right. be moved forward with, uh, yeah. not debating about having yeah. a state bankruptcy code, which is the proposal yeah. that Senator yeah. McConnell put forth yeah. uh, some time ago. Yeah. yeah. OK, thank you so much, Larry. It's always a great treat to have you with us. That's Larry Summers, former Treasury Secretary, now at Harvard. And he also is, by the way, an important contributor to Wall Street Week. This has been another edition of Wall Street Week. See you next week. To protect her home and family in a disaster, Karen was willing to wade through water, mud, and insurance paperwork. Yeah, I can do this. You go, Karen! By simply understanding and updating what her insurance covers and doesn't cover now, she'll be better prepared no matter when disaster strikes. Learn other simple ways to protect your home and family before a natural disaster at ready.gov. That's ready.gov. A message from FEMA and the Ad Council. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. 
More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.